You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Our sermon series in Matthew, we've been journeying through Matthew actually for um, a couple years now, off and on, um, and we're kind of in the home stretch. Uh, so we'll, we'll go through um, Matthew up until, I think, a couple of weeks after Easter. Um, but here we are in, a, frankly, a hard text to read and to, to look at. It's challenging because it's a moment full of so much, so many emotions. It's full of grief, full of fear, full of disappointment, even. And I would argue that it's the most human moments we see in Jesus' life as revealed to us in God's Word. In the midst of this scene, Jesus is the, the main focus, um, but we will see that his disciples, they play a prominent and very disappointing role. So today we're, we're going to break up the text in, in two sections. Um, the first section we're going to look at uh, verses 30 through 35 and see the hubris of Peter, or think pride or arrogance or bravado of Peter. And then in verse 36 through 46, we're going to see very clearly the humanity of Christ. So before we begin, let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people to, uh, as it says in Colossians, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to each other with thankfulness in our hearts to Christ Jesus. God, as we come to the time of instruction, as we look to your word and seek to learn from you, we ask that by the power of your spirit, you would open up our hearts and open up our minds. As we see Jesus today in his full humanity, in his agony, we would really comprehend how great the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Pray, Holy Spirit, um, that you would work in our midst. Let your words come forth and not mine. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so looking at first the, the hubris of Peter, again, think pride, bravado, if, if that's a, a, a $2 word for us. Um, Got to get the alliteration in, man. So hubris and humanity, right? Nailed it. Cool. You can laugh. It's okay to laugh, guys. This is fun. Church is fun. Thank you. Okay. Um, all right. So Jesus and his crew, right? We, we, just, we just saw the last, the last Supper. They got a, a belly full of lamb and unleavened bread and wine. They sing this traditional hymn at the end of the meal. They cinch up their robes, and then they take off on a hike. Not recommended, but, you know, they do it anyways. You don't want to hike with a belly f- uh, full of lamb. Um, I don't know from experience, but that's what I hear. So the meal was good, right? Good meal. But there are parts that are a little weird, Right? Jesus kept talking throughout the meal about, you know, like dying um, really soon, it seems like. And then at one point, he talks about how all the disciples, even though they've been with him for three years, they're, they're all going to bail on him, right? And like one of them specifically is going to betray him. And then this whole thing with Judas happens where Jesus says this really ominous thing, and then Judas just sketches out, right? So the meal was good, right? But weird and odd. And it carries on, right? We see in verse 31, the failure that uh, we see Jesus predict 
um, of one of his disciples, he, he now actually lays on all of them. He says, not just one of you is going to betray me, but he says, all of you will fail me. Matthew 26, 31, it says, Jesus said to them, tonight all of you, all of you disciples that are here will fall away because of me. And how does Jesus know this? Well, his Bible tells him so, right? He drops Zechariah 13.7 on his, on his guys. He says, For it is written in Zechariah 13.7, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus is, is telling his crew that really they'll, they'll be like cockroaches when you flip on the light or, or like a flock of pigeons when you run towards them. When the shepherd is struck, they're going to separate. They're going to bail on him. Jesus continues on. His next words, they're they're way more loaded than I think the disciples really understand. He says in verse 32, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So Jesus, the, the Messiah, he promises first that he will be resurrected, which is no small thing. And then he promises that he will go ahead of them to Galilee. This is both a physical reality. He will meet them there. It's a promise that he'll meet them there again. And it's a spiritual reality. Both indicate to his disciples, but they miss the fact he's saying to them, I have already forgiven what you're about to do. I am promising that I'll meet you on the other side in spite of you falling away. We'll talk more about this this beautiful promise later. But then we get to Peter, right? Peter, you know, the, the foot-shaped mouth disciple. He's the best of us, and he's definitely the worst of us. Amen? He clearly, he, he did not hear in verse 32 the past, present, and future uh, forgiveness that Jesus is, is predicting. Instead, he heard only future failure. And Peter the rock, he's not a failure, okay? Or at least so he thinks. Theologian uh, Dale Bruner in his commentary, the church book, he, he points out that, that Peter fails in three ways in this really short passage. So we're going to look at these for a second. The first is in his condescension to the others, other disciples. In verse 33, Peter says to Jesus, even if everybody else falls away because of you, <laughs> right? He's like, yeah, I mean, really, Jesus, it wouldn't, it wouldn't shock me if like Thomas or Thad, you know, they bell. They've always been a little suspect anyways. How condescending of him, right? He thought so highly of himself that all these other disciples who'd been journeying with Jesus for 30 years were just these JV second stringers. Um, that is personal experience. You know, they're, they're subpar. They can't hack it, but I, Peter, can so not only does he look down his nose at all his other brothers that he's journeyed with for three years, he's also overly confident in himself, right? Again, in verse 33, Peter told Jesus, even if everyone falls away because of you, I will never fall away. Now, Peter's never been short on confidence, right? Matthew 14, he, he boldly wants to step out on the water to walk on it. Matthew 16, he actually gets in Jesus' face when Jesus is doing all that weird, like, dying on the cross talk. And here again, he is strutting forward, chest out. He says, Jesus, I will never fail you. 
Sadly, his confidence leads to really a, a bad and dark place to actually contradict the Lord's teaching. Verse 34, Jesus is responding to Peter. He says, truly, I tell you, tonight before the rooster crows, you, Peter, will deny me three times. So if you remember, there's other times in, in Matthew, right, where, where Jesus says, truly, truly, or in the old KJV words, verily, verily, right? This is a divine statement when it comes after that. So Jesus is saying, truly, Peter, as sure as the sun is to rise, you are going to betray me. This is going to happen. But Peter, in his arrogance, he, he contradicts the Lord yet again. Like he did in Matthew 16, he says, no, Jesus, even if I have to die with you, there's no way I'll deny you. And sadly, a a picture of of leadership is even leaders, when they go astray, they can drag followers with them. So all the disciples who clearly see Peter as a leader, they said the same thing. Peter's looking at Jesus right in the face, and he says, I I know you're my teacher, but I think you have this one wrong, Jesus. I know know myself. Like, why why do you have such a low view of our humanity, Jesus? Don't you know we're, we're, we're good people? As we look at Peter, I think it's important to, to look at ourselves in the story, right? Oftentimes, we, we look at David and Goliath, and we're like, yeah, I'm David slinging the stones, you know, but it's like, no, right? Like, we're the Israelites cowering in the back, right? In stories like this, we need to see ourselves in Peter, in all his brokenness and all his failure, and ask ourselves, Lord, how am I like that? So let's look at these again, condescension of others. Dale Bruner, he says, in all of Scripture, any hearing of the Lord's warning that hears only others warned is faulty. Let me read that again. In all of Scripture, any hearing, so if we're reading our Bibles, any hearing of the Lord's warning that hears only others warned is faulty. So if you look at the words of Jesus and hear the teachings of Jesus and you're only thinking about other people as you read them, you're probably in bad shape. Right? If the pastor's talking through a text on, on gossip and you lean over and you're like, man, I wish Edna was here. She gossips a ton, man. Right? Like, it's like, no. <laughs> you're probably in bad shape. If you're reading the word and you stumble across a, a passage that says not to sin in your anger and all you're doing is coming up with a laundry list of people who you want to text this verse to, you know, like your roommate or your spouse or your boss, but you forget all the outbursts you've had this week, odds are you're, you're probably in bad shape. Again, Bruner says, in all of Scripture, any hearing of the Lord's warning that hears only others warned is faulty. So condescension of others. Secondly, confidence in yourself. Right? The sinful nature in all of us is prone to pride. It's, it's prone to stand alone apart from God. This was the sin of Adam and Eve. This was the sin of Peter. This is our sin. Like gravity, pride is constantly dragging us down, pulling us away, in a sense, from God. Because our sinful nature simply, at its core, doesn't like dependence. 
So condescension of others, confidence in yourself. And then lastly, contradicting the Lord's teaching. We may look at at Peter arguing with Jesus and, and think like, oh, I mean, that's like direct contradiction, you know, like I don't do that, right? But contradiction of Jesus' teaching doesn't have to be getting literally in Jesus' face to argue with him, right? Simple disregard for Jesus' teaching in scriptures is contradicting his teaching. If we're not caring for the poor and marginalized, or if we're not honoring our mother and father, or if we're not honest with friends, coworkers, family, what we're doing is we're saying to Jesus, I have a better way. Your way's wrong. <laughs> That's a contradiction of his teaching. So just a, a question to you, where, where do you find yourself like Peter? Where, where does your heart most naturally gravitate towards? Is it in condescension of others looking down at all the sinners around you? Is it confidence in yourself thinking that you're good? Like, I, I got this, God. <laughs> Is it even contradicting the Lord's teaching? Just outwardly disobeying his commands in Scripture? The, the, the reason I, I, I want us to camp there, I want us to feel that, is because it's in seeing like th- this just failure of Peter that we can see the beauty of the scene to come, as dark as it is. It's in our depths, the depths of our sin that we can see the heights of our salvation. So seeing Peter, seeing ourselves in Peter, it's vital to our understanding of this famous scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's here that we see fully the humanity of Christ. Now, as we look at this next section, I, I want to remind us of, of the historical belief of who Jesus is. Uh, in the historic confession of the church, for those who've been participating in our Sunday night equipping class with Dr. Greg Allison, you probably remember this, but for those who aren't, Dr. Allison writes this in his book, 50 Core Truths of the Christian Faith. In talking about Jesus, he said, Jesus, the Son of God, is the second person of the Trinity, equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit, so equal in his divinity. In the incarnation, when Jesus became man, he took on human nature and became the God-man, one person with two natures. So the historic affirmation of the church is that Jesus lives in these two natures, and he is, as it says, fully man and fully God, both existing in one person in Christ Jesus. Now, it's important to remember this and hang on to this truth as we look at the Garden of Gethsemane, because again, I would argue that this is one of the most human moments we see in Jesus's life, right? This isn't the first time we see his humanity. He was born of a woman, right? So he, he would have nursed like other babies. He grew in wisdom and stature. So he went through puberty. If that makes you uncomfortable, that's what being a human is, right? He got hungry. He got thirsty. He had emotions. He felt grief. He was compassionate. He was moved to compassion. He felt anger. But this scene in the garden, it it, it feels different, really, right? It's almost like he is too human for us. He feels too much like us in the garden. 
So as the text says, Jesus takes his disciples to a place called the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a place that he's gone to before. It was on the outskirts of town. He went there to get away, to spend time in solitude with God. So yeah, he's walking along. He asks eight of his disciples to go to a certain spot and pray. Then he asks his, his inner circle, if you will, Peter, James, and John, to go with him a little bit further. And as he's walking along, right, with these three, what we know is going to happen is that these same guys that saw the transfiguration <laughs> are going to see Jesus at one of his lowest, in a sense, moments, their most human moments. So these three, they saw the glory of the transfiguration. They were like, Jesus, let's stay here. Let's not leave here. This is awesome. But the guys that saw the glory are the ones that are going to see the grief in Gethsemane. They're going to see Jesus again at one of his lowest human moments. And it's here in the garden that we see very clearly that Jesus is anguished. Verse 37, as we read earlier, it says he was walking along with his closest friends and he, he bore his soul to them and he says, I, he, uh, what's he say? I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. He's saying this to his deepest friends. Earlier in verse 37, it said that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Some translations say grieved and ag- agitated, anguished and dismayed, distressed and anguished. Do you see this? Jesus was in anguish. Do you hear that anguish? He says, I am grieved to death. One commentator says, Jesus is depressed. Now, if that makes you squirm a little bit, it made me squirm too, but I don't know that it's wrong. He says, I am grieved to death to his closest friends. Look at him. He he asked his friends to to stay at this spot. He walks a little further. He asked them to to stay awake and pray. Then in verse 39, Jesus goes a little farther, the text tells us. He fell face down and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus, he collapsed in grief, flat on his face, and he cried out and asked God to let the cup pass. In in his humanity, right, in his human nature, which exists in one person next to his divine nature, in his human nature, he did not want to drink the cup. Now this cup, we've talked about it before, it symbolizes divine judgment. If you remember in Psalm 75, verse 8, it says, For there is a cup in the Lord's hand, full of wine, blend with spices, and he pours from it. All the wicked of the earth will drink, draining it to the dregs. This divine judgment or wrath, it was the penalty due to mankind for their sin against a holy God. But again, don't miss this. Jesus, in his full humanity, remember, he is the God-man, fully man, fully God, fully divine, fully human. In his human nature, Jesus asked the cup to pass. 
He asked that there had there had to be some other way, God. Now I don't I don't want us to just gloss over that to like get on the other side where we know Jesus was obedient. We know the end of the story, right? And that's important, right? It proves he was who he says he was. Proves he was the Messiah. But I want us to see the grief in this deliberation and this request that he makes. We need to sit in it because it helps us to see that Jesus is like us in all respects, yet without sin. He experienced deep grief and deep despair. Depression, even if you're comfortable calling it that, just like we do. And he wrestled with God's will. Do you see that? Just like we do. He made his deepest desires in his human nature known to God, just like we do. Jesus, he knows the anguish of all anguish. The cup of wrath pouring out on him. It's because of that anguish that he knows that um, in Hebrews 14, we can uh, confidently know that we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses or, dare I say, our grief or our anguish or our depression, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus felt the anguish that you feel now. Jesus felt the grief, the despair that you feel now. But even further, we see Jesus' humanity and the fact that Jesus is moved in prayer. If you want to know Jesus' humanity, like first he prayed. If he was only God, why, like why would he pray? Seems like an affront, but he was fully man and fully God. In his humanity, he prayed. Verse 40 through 41, it says, Then he came to the disciples, found them sleeping. Good job, guys. Uh, he asked Peter, so couldn't you stay awake with me for an hour? Then he says to them again, stay awake and pray that you don't enter temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So bold, confident Peter, right? He he just told Jesus, he's like, I'll go to the ends of the earth with you. I'll fight every battle. Like he he lost the battle to to sleep, right? His, His heavy little eyelids, you know, they kept drooping. He was trying to hold them up with his fingers, but he couldn't even do that. Jesus reminds the disciples to stay awake and pray because Jesus' disciples, as Jesus is, are changed in prayer. So we too, as disciples, are changed in prayer. It's where we ourselves draw our strength. That's what Jesus says. Stay awake and pray so you don't fall into temptation. But Jesus goes on, right? Again, a second time he went away. So he's disappointed his disciples, but he prays all the more. He went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So do you see that? Jesus' prayer has actually changed. His prayer has changed. There's no formal request made in the second time. He doesn't request that the cup pass. And he doesn't mention his own will next to the Father's will, right? He says, my father, if this cannot pass, so be it. Your will be done. 
think it's beautiful to see that Jesus in his humanity is, is moved, he's changed in prayer. As we see this, if, if this is too much for you, right? Hebrews 5 talks about this reality. Look at this. During his earthly life, he, Jesus, offered prayers and appeals with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was the son, fully divine, he learned obedience from what he suffered, fully human. He learned obedience. So although he was the divine son, the second person of the Trinity, his human nature, which is distinct, learned obedience through this scene of anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because Jesus learned obedience, it doesn't mean that before he learned obedience that he was sinning, right? So when he makes his request that the cup was passed, I would argue that it's just a genuine, humble request in his humanity that God would allow the cup to pass. But all the while, he never loses fact that he is going to fully submit to God's will. So after praying the second time, right, Jesus returns to his disciples. He's only to be disappointed again. Verse 44, after leaving them, he went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. So this time, his, his prayer doesn't change from the second time. And by the conclusion of the story, I think one of the cool things is that we, we see as he leaves his third time of prayer, we see a resolute Jesus. Jesus is fully set now on meeting his betrayer. He's ready for the beginning of the end. Look at verse 45 with me. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are, are you still sleeping and resting See, the time is near. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, I think this is so interesting. Jesus has such great anguish in this sin, in this scene, and yet from here on out, he seems determined and to be at peace. From here on out, we don't see this huge agonizing scenes of Jesus where he's crying out from the depths of his humanity. I think one of the things that we see in this text is that oftentimes the deepest anguish and pain and despair is actually in the wrestling with God about his will. It's as we're leading up to these times when we see potentially these, these times of trouble and tribulation coming into our lives. It's in this wrestling, in this agonizing, in this holding ourselves before God, laying bare ourselves, asking and requesting to Him. These are the times that are often the hardest. But I think a lot of times what happens is when God doesn't answer our requests, we realize that what we're in, what we're going through, is his will. So when God doesn't take away that cancer from the loved one that we begged and pleaded for, it doesn't make the suffering any easier, 
but it allows us, like Jesus, to be anchored and grounded in that peace that, okay, maybe this is what God's will is. Maybe God hasn't given us the biological child that we've longed for and yearned for. The agonizing part is often wrestling with God, asking God, is this really what you want for us? doesn't make our suffering easier, right? doesn't make it any easier. Like Jesus, the cross was not easy. But as he wrestled with God's will in the garden and became away resolute, fully submitted to God's will now, he had a peace about him. So how then, like, how could God use such great suffering? How could he use this anguish of the garden? Where we see Jesus just crying out from the depths of his soul. In Hebrews 2.9, this is what we see. The, 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 gosh, the, the glory of the gospel, even in the grief of the garden. Hebrews 2.9 says, what we do see is Jesus Because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. So the the, the Garden of Gethsemane, honestly, as we read it, it's like gut-wrenching. Jesus' dear friend who he's made the, the leader of this budding organization that he's starting called The Church got in his face, and then wasn't even there for him. Jesus is wrestling, right, with the very reality that he's about to face an excruciating death. He wrestles with the fact that the oceanic tidal wave of God's wrath for sins that he didn't commit will swallow him up. He deals with the deep deep disappointment that as he's grieved to death and as he's bore his soul to his friends, they're not there for him. And then he says, man, at the end, there's my betrayer. Like Judas was his friend. <laughs> like, are you serious? There's my betrayer. I want us to feel the agony. <laughs> in the pain in the garden, right? This isn't some cute adventure storybook Bible thing, right? Like this is agony and pain in our Lord. And the deeply unsettling part of it all is because of us. It's because of your sin. It's because of your sin. It's because of my sin. The, the agony leading up to the cross, it's, it's just as much ours as the, the, the agony we own up to at the cross, right? Like, I would almost argue this is worse. Like, I, I feel bad when I put a friend out to, like, ask me to move a piece of furniture, and here my God is agonizing over something that I am making him do, <laughs> But it really is it's in the face of, of agony that we see beauty. 
church. Now, don't lose sight of this, right? This is hard stuff, but look at the beauty that we see dripping throughout the whole text. There's overwhelming glimpses of grace that if we're not careful, we'll miss the whole thing, right? Look back at 31 to 32 with me. He says, tonight all of you follow, will fall away because of me. That's me. But verse 32, the promise of hope and resurrection. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. There's the promise of the defeat of death. There's the promise that even after the abandonment of him, he will rejoin them as their God, as their Messiah. He will still be their leader, even though they failed him. And then look again in the face of his closest friends who can't even keep their eyes open for an hour to pray. Jesus says to them in verse 46, get up. Let's go. He could have said, y'all are trash. Stay here and sleep. Do what you got to do. I'll take care of this. He could have said, hey, you're dead to me. You guys can't do anything for me anymore. But he says, no, (laughs) let's go. You guys have royally let me down, but you're still mine. I'm still your savior. (laughs) I was before you did this, Peter. I was right now as you're doing this, and I will be when you deny me here in a little bit. It's even in this this small call to the disciples just to get up and go with him that we see the gospel. Jesus does not leave or forsake those that he calls, right? The gospel message doesn't Operate like the world's message, that if you're here for me, I'm here for you. If you're not, to heck with you. You're dead to me. Hebrews 13.5 says this directly. God himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. In your darkest moments, in your deepest failures, Jesus says, I'll, I'll never leave or abandon you. Dale Bruner, he he says this all too well. He says, Gethsemane assures us in a strangely comforting way that all will be well. Definitely not because disciples prove their mettle. (laughs) The disciples let us down. So it's not because of them, but for more substantial reasons. The horror of the cup has been overcome in its bearer. And the cupbearer forgives his disloyal friends. And I love this. If Jesus is steady now, everything will be all right. Friends, whether you're here today and you're a Christian or whether you're here today and you're not, the invitation is the same. The invitation is to look at the the agony of the Garden of, of Gethsemane to see the sin that Jesus was marching to take on. But seeing that even in that agony, there is hope for redemption. Not even hope, but a promise. A promise that he will rise and that he will go ahead to Galilee, that he will still be your savior. 
We see in the disciples, right, this picture of our brokenness, of our sinfulness, of our abandonment, of our failure. But we see in Jesus the suffering that we deserved, the agony that we earned. And it's in his substitution, it's in his taking our place that we now can experience the glory of the cross. Friends, the Christian life, it's about constant renewal. It requires a, requires a constant look at the depths of our sins so that we can see the heights of our salvation. It allows us to see the agony and the beauty in a scene like the Garden of Gethsemane. Every week when we gather together as a church, we rehearse this paradoxical reality that there is agony in the cross, yet also beauty and the redemption that comes from it. We do this every week by partaking in a meal called communion together. If you'd like to participate in this meal, there should be individual communion servings in the pew backs in front of you. The reason we partake in this meal is it's a reminder of Christ's life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. We do ask that if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that you would abstain from this meal, and not because we want to exclude you, but simply because this meal is for those who are about the reality of Christ. At the Last Supper that we we looked at last week in Matthew, the disciples were eating, and Jesus took bread and blessed it and broke it. He gave it to the disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body. Let us take and eat this bread together. Then Jesus took a cup, and after giving thanks, he said to them, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of many. Let us take and drink this cup together. Church, the Apostle Paul says that as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, that you're pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. As we close today, let us take time to reflect on that which Christ has done for us, the agony that he took on in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's pray. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.